It's from uh, Deuteronomy 32 as we pray. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that your teaching, your word would fall like rain and your words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. Lord, we pray as we hear your word now and we focus on it for the next few minutes, we pray that you would indeed refresh us and make us more like Jesus. In his name, amen. So, have Philippians 2 open in front of you, which I'm about to do. There you go. A couple of years back, um, uh, there, there were some Aussies, Aussie uh, scientists. They were astrophysicists, no less. So, unfortunately, not the guy from The Bachelor. What a pity if you follow that show, and good luck to you if you don't. Um, they claimed to discover this, uh, the fastest-growing black hole known in the universe. This, um, this astronomical beast is consuming a mass equivalent to our sun every two days. One moment your favourite star is shining brightly, then poof, it's all gone, consumed. Now, should we be worried? Is it coming our way? Will it consume the earth? Is it time to panic? Uh, no, no, don't fret. This black hole is growing at a rate of, and I quote, 1% per million years. Now, that is an incredible indication of how large the universe is, isn't it? Absolutely mind-blowing, if you ask me. And secondly, what I guess is somewhat comforting, uh, Dr Christian Wolfe is his name, who heads up the team who discovered uh, this beast, says not to worry, as his team has, have estimated that it would take 12 billion years for this black hole to make it to the earth and uh, consume us. So we've got 12 billion years. So I'm thinking that's pretty good news. That's a long time in anyone's universe, isn't it? So, you know, there's no view like it, is there? You know, one of the reasons why I love living here is the stars and the sky. They're just beautiful. Uh, perhaps you've been out in the desert somewhere or out in the bush or just maybe in your backyard in Robertson. Uh, if, you have, if you don't live in Robertson, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, it's okay. You can get out and enjoy them somewhere else. Um, you're always welcome here. The, the, the contrast between the bright light and the darkness, it is just beautiful, isn't it? Well, as we pick up from Philippians chapter 2, where we left off last week, the Apostle Paul, who's sitting in a jail cell, it's about 62 AD, and he's sitting in Rome and he's writing a letter to this church at Philippi, which is not that far away. Uh, but he writes and encourages the Christians of the church at Philippi to shine like stars, like stars in the universe, to stand out. He says, don't do a disappearing act as followers of Jesus. That is, get consumed by the world around us like some black hole. Instead, as, a, as you follow the, the, the crucified, risen, uh, reigning Christ, if you remember from Philippians 2, 2 verses 1 to 11, we looked at the last week, who has been exalted to the highest place, as you follow that Jesus, will shine like stars, shine like stars in the universe. So I'd love it if you've got a Bible open. You can have it on your phone if you like as well, um, whatever works. We're actually going to focus on chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. It's just those two little paragraphs, and I'll leave you to read 19 to 30 on your own, but there is, I'll make a connection there in a moment. 
Well, let's note how these words begin. Therefore, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So with that first word in verse 12, if you're a regular here, you know the question you're meant to ask. What's the therefore, therefore? That's the question we ask. So that key word is important. Paul is drawing two logical conclusions from that hymn of praise at the start of chapter 2. That hymn of praise he offered up to Christ in verses 6 to 11. And again, that was from last week. Here's the first little connection. Because every knee should bow. See that in verse 10? Every knee should bow. Well, we do well to live in the light of the fact that we shall all bow before Jesus on that last day and give an account to him. Therefore, continue to work out uh, as you've always, uh, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed and so forth. So you see, that's first, that's the first connection. Because one day we'll all have to give an account to him and we'll all uh, bow before him, every one of us, we've got to give an account for our lives, therefore, do this. Now, in one sense, that's the fear and trembling the apostle refers to, that we will have to give an account for our lives. But I think there's more than that as well. It's not just that. We ought to think of this fear in the context of a loving father, because that has been the context, a loving father who gave his son. So not a fear of what he might do to us, but it's a fear of what we might do to him as we respond in disobedience. What about this second connection there in verses 6 to 11? Christ Jesus himself, after terrible suffering, was finally vindicated and is reigning now, that's verse 9, so shall we be. If you're a Christian person, that's what you, you can long for and expect a confident expectation. Jesus obeyed and endured to the end. That was his obedient response and was finally vindicated. Now Paul writes our response, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now we'll get to what working out your salvation looks like in a minute. But for now, let's pause and grasp uh, the vital connection between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Wow, what a topic on a Sunday morning, hey? So God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Now, unfortunately, I played a bit of rugby yesterday, which is dumb at the age of 45, and so I can hardly move this arm. So this illustration works when I'm moving my arms, but that really, really hurts. So if I stop doing it for a while, just pretend I'm moving it, all right? Um, so what's this connection between God's sovereignty? Because we read in verses 12 and 13, verse 12 says we are called to work a Christian, Follow Jesus are called to work out your salvation. But in verse 13, we read, it's God who works in you. How does that work, <laughs> so to speak? Well, let's note first what the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say, God doesn't say, work to get salvation. For God has done his bit, now it's all up to you. The Bible doesn't say that at all. And nor does it say, you may already have your salvation, saved by God, forgiven, but perseverance in the end depends entirely up to you. You've got to go and do it. God's done his bit, now you do your bit. doesn't say that. And nor does it say, well, let's just let go and let God and the Spirit will lead you and it'll all be okay in the end. 
Now, none of these is what the Apostle is saying. Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling precisely because it is God working in us to both will and to act according to his good purpose. Did you see that? Now, nor is God working merely to strengthen us in our willing and acting. Paul's words are stronger than that also. God himself is working in us, if you follow Jesus, to both will and to act. He works in us at the levels of our wills, decision-making, that sort of thing, and to act, our doing, the level of our doing. God works in us to do that. But what we read here in God's word is that this is not... This is not an incentive to do nothing. Well, if God's working in me, fantastic. I'm just going to sit back and, oh, you beauty, do nothing now. We don't read that at all. We actually read that Paul says, this is God working in us, to, to us to will and to act, is, is an incentive for us to press on and to continue in obedience. So assured as we are that God works in this way in his people, we should be all the more strongly resolved to will and to act in ways that please our Lord. Understanding this uh, human responsibility and God's sovereignty is not as... It's not easy, is it? It's not easy. And it seems one is at either end. One's at this end, one's at that end. How on earth do they work together? But the Bible says that they do. They say both are true, but also says God says they do work together. It's that bit in the middle, you see that we need to try to understand, but it's hard. But God says they do work together. So here then we read of God's continuous, gracious, sovereign work in our lives becoming for us an incentive to press on with fear and trembling. Okay, that's a lot in that, isn't it? That's a hard topic. It is. See, our lives are not short on incentives. Let's think about that for a moment. Our lives are not short on incentives to um, that shape our behaviour. It's true, isn't it? Perhaps you have an incentive scheme at work. Do you have one of those? Maybe an employee of the month. I don't know, maybe you win um, you know, some sort of set of steak knives if you do particularly well, who knows? Uh, some sort of incentive scheme. I did, um, you know, it's designed to make you work harder and happier, mostly harder, let's be honest. I saw this cartoon the other day. There's a, there's a scene, the scene is a job interview and the applicant, the guy applying for the job, asks the employer what their incentive scheme is. And this is what he says. He says, we call it continued employment. <laughs> I'm not sure he's got the grasp of the incentive scheme. Anyway. Well, you know, there's, there's a lot of... There's, it's not just at work, is it? We have these incentives that shape our behaviour. Uh, acceptance from our peers. That shapes our behaviour. Workmates, teammates will often lead us to act in a certain way. And sometimes it's good, and sometimes it's not. Vanity. We train, we diet, so as we can look good, so people will notice, so we'll be accepted. There's, a, there's an incentive scheme. Greed, even. We work harder to earn more, to have more. More is the incentive. Even love. We, we can love so as we'll be loved. But what's extraordinary here in the word of God is that God shows us in his word that his work, his continuous, gracious, sovereign work in us 
is an incentive for, to, for followers of Jesus to press on. As we see in a moment, to shine like stars, to hold on to the word of life and obey it. That's the incentive. Extraordinary, isn't it? Well, next, Paul moves on from this uh, general exhortation in verses 12 and 13 to this, I guess, a bit of a con concrete content in verses 14 onwards. In other words, what he says is, here's what Paul, what, what the Bible, these words here in verses 14 onwards, uh, here's what Paul means when he says, work at your salvation with fear and trembling. This is what it looks like, all right? What he does, he makes three points. And if you've got an outline there from the bulletin, I should have got you to get that open before. Um, your outline in the bulletin has, has those... Uh, I've lost mine, it's down here somewhere. There it is. So if you want to open that up, there are those three points that we'll go over pretty briefly now. But you might want to look. The first one is what we call self-denying contentment. So it comes from verse 14. Verse 14 says, uh, Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. See, what Paul's really talking about here is Christian contentment. That's the opposite of complaining and arguing, wouldn't you think? That's what it is. It's a theme that this contentment theme Paul takes up in chapter 4 of the letter as well. Uh, that's the way that a Christian, a follower of Jesus, can stand out because God has given them everything they need. They don't need to complain, to argue, uh, stand out like stars in the black sky in a me-first, uh, whining, self-pitying world. That's the world we live in. As followers of Jesus who hold out the word of life, that really means holding firmly onto God's word. We grab onto God's word, we hold out the word of life, as a follower of Jesus who do that, we hold on to God's promises in his word, well then there must not be any self-pity which leads to complaining, whinging. But our lives, our church, must be characterised by thankfulness and godly praise. So, if you find yourself complaining or whining, and wherever it might be, maybe even at church, and there's plenty to complain and whine about, let me, let's be honest here, um, <laughs> we don't always get things right, do we? But God actually says here there's no room for that, for complaining and arguing. That's, that's the unhelpful bickering arguing in his church. But there's plenty of room for thankfulness. So what's the recipe to make sure we don't keep complaining and arguing? Well, we're thankful. You know, one of the best things a Christian can do every morning is to thank God. Thank God for his goodness to us. I tell you, it'll shape your day. And your thoughts, your attitudes, your conversations, your relationships. Chapter 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. Early in our service, we began by thanking God. Looking back at um, those words now. I have them up on the screen. There they are. That's what we said before. We prayed that. And it's a good example of a prayer of thankfulness, which works against any whining or complaining. So I'm not saying you've got to learn this or anything, but it's a good prayer. Let's have a look at it again. Almighty God, creator and redeemer, we praise you for your work of creation, for the beauty of the world around us, for every gift we enjoy. We bless you for creating us to know you, love you and obey you. Most of all, we thank you for your amazing love in sending your son to restore your world, to die for us and give us life in all its fullness. Accept, O oh God, our praise and thanksgiving through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we all said, Amen. So that's what we prayed before. 
It's a, it's a good example of a prayer of thanksgiving. And the Psalms is also full of examples of pray, uh, prayers and songs of praise and thanksgiving. Psalm 118 says, Give thanks to the Lord, his love endures forever. And I think it's repeated about ten times. So, why don't you try that this week? Try each morning, when you get out of bed, give thanks to God. Give it a go. For the weather. Uh, for, for your porridge that you're just about to eat. I don't know. For your family, for your friends, for your church. As you roll, you can actually pray. You can, you can thank God for the, the lovely doona you're under right now and the comfortable bed. But I, I do advise, you probably, um, that may not help you get out of bed quickly. You spend an hour, an hour thanking God for this lovely doona and it's so warm and cosy and I'm still here it's half an hour later. You're being very thankful and that's wonderful. But give it a go. As you roll out of bed and put the feet down, thank God for something. There's plenty to thank God for. Try that. Okay, the second point Paul makes as he explains this phrase, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, uh, this is the key word. The key word is continue. Here's what God says. God says, in verse, I've just uh, put in the red there, it's the second half of verse 16. God says that this kind of perseverance, this continue, is undertaken, at least in part, hear this, so as to delight Christian leaders. Now, we'll get to this in the coming weeks, but Paul says much about imitating the right Christian leaders. So two examples are Timothy and Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus almost died trying to help Paul in jail. What a guy. Um, Now, you can have a read more about that if you like. So the Philippian Christians are to continue without complaining or arguing, holding on to the word of life, pressing on in cheerful godliness, so that Paul, their leader, their pastor, the guy who planted the church, their teacher, may boast, see it? Boast on the day of Christ that he or I did not run or labour for nothing. So why should we continue as followers of Jesus? Well, one reason is that on that day when every knee will bow, your leaders will delight in you. That you've kept the faith, you've finished the race, you've fought the good fight, as Paul uses elsewhere. Paul even calls this church his joy and his crown. Now, I tell you, I get that. As someone who's been in Christian ministry for a long time, I get that. I do. Uh, One of the greatest joys... I experience is hearing of someone I shared the gospel with many years ago continuing. I keep following Jesus. It really does give me such great joy. I'm not going to harp on about it, but our, our speaker for our, our church weekend away is a guy I led in Bible study from year 7 to year 12. So a long time ago. And now he's in ministry and, and great. But he's been a keen Christian. That gives me so much joy. It really does. It's amazing. And we play guitar together. That's good fun too. Uh, <laughs> But I imagine the joy of heaven will be even greater. See, if you're a follower of Jesus today, if you trust in the Lord Jesus today, who was it who shared the gospel with you? Who was it? Just think, think of that person. Put that person in your mind. If, you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you can ask someone after the service, well, what was that experience like? You can come and talk to me if you want, Michelle. Um, who was it who shared the gospel with you? So I've got a picture of someone in my mind. His name was Graham, actually. How about that? Just like me. Uh, who was it encouraged you and taught you God's word? Think of those people. Now, I want to tell you now, keep going. Keep going as a Christian. Press on. 
Continue as a follower of Jesus so that you may be a delight to them on that day and maybe even before. I reckon we can imagine it a bit like this. What's one, who's, who's one of the first to congratulate with great pride the marathon runner as she crosses the finishing line? Uh, well, it, it's the coach, isn't it? Most of the time, there's the coach, the trainer, right at the end of the finishing line. So arms, all these arm business, oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> arms wide open at the finishing line, waiting for the, the runner to, to make it to the end. It's a great picture. You did it, the coach says. Even when they insulted you, even when they ridiculed you, even when they left you out, even when the pressure to conform to worldly, coach, worldly culture was intense, even when your family was falling apart, when your marriage was on the rocks, when, when money was really tight, you continued. You kept running and you held on tight to God's word. Now as you cross the finishing line, there is great delight, even boasting, in their obedience as they've followed the coach's instruction. In the case of Philippians, it's Paul's instruction. And it's not Paul, of course, boasting in himself, is it? But in Christ's work in them. Okay, well, let's look at this final point and we're fleshing out what this continuing to work out your salvation with fear and trembling means. We read that such Christian perseverance is a form of uh, Christian sacrifice that makes the leader's sacrifice a complementary capstone to theirs. Now, I know it's late, but I want you to focus just for a couple more minutes because this is a bit tricky, unfortunately. Verse 17, let's read it. It says, But even if I'm being poured out, so Paul's talking here, poured out like a drink offering, so he's about to die, that's the expression about dying, on the sacrifice and service from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So, the Philippians' actions, we could say, are called, let's just call them the primary sacrifice, right? They give themselves to Christ. We've been reading about this. They're going well as a church. And commit themselves to pleasing Jesus, whatever the cost. Then if Paul has to give up his life, so if he dies in jail because of the gospel... His sacrifice is merely a kind of offering poured out on top of theirs. Such a sacrifice from Paul is meaningless unless it's poured out on top of the more substantial sacrifice, and that is the lives of the Philippian Christians, because they've pressed on. They've continued. Now, I'll put it another way. Paul says, if I suffer or even lose my life in a a sacrifice poured out on top of your self-denial and obedience, I'm delighted, he says. What I do not want is to die a martyr's death without any corresponding fruit in your life. As it is, whatever small sacrifice I'm called to make is but a complementary capstone, holds it all together, to the sacrifice that all Christians are called to make. In this I'll rejoice, he says, so you too should rejoice and be glad with me. That's how he finishes off the section. Well, friends, um, I, I, I love looking at the stars in the sky. As I said, it's pretty good. It's a nice view. But what I love more is witnessing God's church here shine like those stars in the night. Uh, standing Standing out from the darkness in love and obedience to the Lord Jesus, holding on to the word of life. So why don't we pray now and ask God by his spirit that we can continue to do uh, that more and more. Why don't we pray? Father, we do thank you that um, 
Well, we thank you, Lord, for your word today. Lord, there's some challenging things to think about. But most of all, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who died and rose again and is now reigning with you. Lord, we thank you that we put our trust in something that's real and certain and we look forward to one day seeing you uh, on that day, as we've been talking about. But Lord, we pray in response to, to your goodness to us, we pray that we would shine like stars. We pray that we would hold on to the word of life. We pray that we would continue and press on. And we long for that day when we will see you and arms outstretched and we'll have that delight in not only seeing you but in others who have also continued and press on and pressed on. So Lord, thank you for your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.